Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest book ever written by a man. Um, today, instead of telling you about the book, which again is about an 11-year-old Batman, Iron Man type character, a detective who has to fight giant robot bees, I'll let some kids do it. So the front of the book has a blurb from Richard Adams, author of Watership Down. He called it a most original and amusing piece of work. Uh, quick side story, I was with some uh, writers uh, two weekends ago, uh, hanging out, and we were just chatting, and uh, apropos of uh, nothing I'd said, the subject of Richard Adams came up, and they talked back and forth, and uh, one of the uh, women said, oh, that book uh, meant so much to me as a child. Watership Down might be the greatest book that most inspirational book I ever read that made me want to be a writer and then a couple of the other writers had center, uh, similar sentiments and I'm just shaking in my seat and finally I couldn't I couldn't resist anymore I said I not only interviewed Richard Adams at middlegradeninja.com he wrote a blurb for my book and then immediately after I regretted it because the room was filled with my smugness I won't make that mistake again uh, but this is a podcast uh, so here you you can hear my smugness um, there are a bunch of fun blurbs in addition to Mr. Uh, Richard Adams at the front of the, the uh, book. We had some uh, fifth, sixth, and fourth graders uh, read ahead of time as a, a test audience. Uh, and they all said nice things. Justin said it was terrific. If you like fiction, it was really funny. And if you liked action, I'd recommend it for boys. Uh, Michaela said the manuscript should be published because it's amazing. Uh, Matthew said it really gets you in some parts and it's just a great book. Uh, Brandon said the manuscript should be published as an actual book because it's a real good book. I really like the action. Uh, Dakota called it really funny, but my uh, favorite is Isaiah of the fourth grade who said, I kind of liked it, but not that much. But I think it should be turned into a book because you would have wasted your time and other kids might like it. So thank you. Isaiah of the fourth grade thinks that other kids might like Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. The paperback obviously is available. The audiobook is narrated by the great David Radke. And the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever ebooks are sold. So get yourself a free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get ready for the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, which is coming soon and very soon, as soon as I have an exact date. Every uh, start of every episode, look forward to me mentioning it again. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written the young adult novel Altogether Now, a zombie story. Extremely violent, extremely mean-spirited, but also sort of humorous. 15-year-old uh, Ricky Gennaro is trying to get his 6-year-old brother Chuck, who's been infected with the zombie virus, uh, through the zombie apocalypse to where he believes there may be a cure. Also got all right now a short zombie story, which is set in the same universe. Uh, and then, of course, the Book of David is available. It is a five-volume uh, serial horror novel about a, a, an atheist who buys a haunted house that then gives him religious visions involving flying saucers. Uh, his wife, my favorite character, Miriam Walters, is a middle-grade author. So even if you don't like Stephen King-esque horror with lots of profanity, lots of really offensive things, uh, you might like it simply because of the idea of a middle-grade writer trying to write books and submit to agents and editors and ultimately um, learning about self-publishing whilst living in a haunted house. Uh, like I say, it's five volumes long. The first volume, The Book of David, Chapter 1, is available to download as an ebook for free wherever fine ebooks are sold. So whenever you're listening to this, get yourself a copy of The Book of David, Chapter 1, and check it out. 
Uh, coming up here at the Middle Grade Ninja podcast next week, we are going to have author Lamar Giles, um, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Last Last Day of Summer. Uh, Lamar will be here March 13th, uh, and then the following week, I'll be talking with uh, Kathy Appel. Uh, she will be here March 18th. Uh, Kathy Appelt, of course, is the author of The Underneath, and you know who Kathy Appelt is. That's going to be an amazing conversation on both of those shows, so stay tuned. Plenty of great more, uh, great guests coming. If you're watching or listening to this and you would like to be a guest on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, head to middlegradeninja.com and email me and be happy to set up a future episode. Today, however, I'm so excited. We're going to be talking with middle grade author Stephen K. Smith. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing today? Good. How you doing? I am worn out from that very long introduction, but otherwise doing pretty well. Uh, Stephen, tell uh, esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and your book so that uh, we'll get uh, pumped and excited for the conversation we're about to have. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's exciting to be on the podcast. So I've been writing about six years and I write primarily middle grade books. So I've got two series. One is called the Virginia Mysteries, which is, I like to describe it as kind of like a modern day Hardy Boy, Nancy Drew books, but they're set at different historical spots around Virginia. So they're fictional mysteries, but they have a lot of real history uh, in them. So they're, they're fun kind of mystery uh, adventures. And then I've got another uh, middle grade series that's called Brother Wars, which as you might suspect is about two brothers that don't get along very well and all their misadventures. So that's uh, three books in that series and seven books in the mystery series. So that's uh, that's my those are my books, and I've been writing uh, full time for about a year now, and do lots of school visits. So trying to trying to stay busy with all uh, the fun the fun self publishing and indie publishing and uh, and writing business. So it's been great. I've got all kinds of questions for you today. I so appreciate your your being here to subject yourself to them. Um, Want to start with what is it about um, writing for children that works well in indie publishing? Since you've been able to have a lot of success doing it, you know, when I started out, I actually decided not to try to even go the traditional route. I, I for better or for worse, I saved myself any of the the potential pain of getting rejected or anything, and didn't try any queries. So I had started discovering pretty quickly about indie publishing, and you know, I like to call it that more than self publishing, but that's really what it was called back then. And uh, I quickly found that a lot of the fun for me was kind of the entrepreneurial side of things and starting my own small business and starting my own imprint and and trying to figure out, you know, what are some ways to to get these stories out there? And I think it is a little bit different. I think there's some pros and cons to writing for this age group and trying to do it indie. You, you do have sometimes one of your arms tied behind your back if you're trying to get out in some of the traditional ways. But, um, you know, we can get into it more, I'm sure, but I think one of the ways I started to try to make it a, a foothold was to start writing about regional topics and that got some really local interest in Virginia. And then over the years, I've been slowly trying to kind of concentric circle out from there and, and using online tools and Amazon and different places to try to build an audience. But um, I, I found, you know, little bit by little, it's a little bit like a snowball uh, rolling downhill. It, it starts to pick up and, and over the years it's, it's been, uh, growth each year, so it's been fun. And now, of course, you're the sole owner of your, your IP. Uh, anything you want to do with it is completely at your own discretion, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's for better or for worse. Some people like to just be kind of writing all the time and send it off and not have to worry about it. I came, um, 
I worked for 20 years for an internet startup company out in out of Manhattan. So I had a little bit of the experience of of working at small businesses and kind of the excitement of of starting something new and seeing it grow. So that part appealed to me. Um, so I think it's it's fun to just be in charge and it's on your shoulders to make sure that the writing is is where it needs to be and get the editing and finding a team behind it. That's one of the reasons I really don't like to call it self-publishing because it's not a DIY effort. It's very much a starting your own small business and making sure that everything's running as smoothly, just like you would be doing if you're running a, a hamburger shop or anything else. Um, but you know, that way you can really put your ideas behind it and, and see what you can make of it, which is, which is fun. Deeply jealous. You never sent a, a single query, never had a taste of rejection from a, an agent or an editor, just rejection from, I, I assume, the occasional reader? Yeah, you know, you're not going to please everybody. Ironically, I am kind of thinking about maybe it would be good to try to try another stream and, and try out the traditional path at some point in the future. So I've just started looking at that a little bit. But um, it, I, once you, once I've gone down that path, you can kind of get a little bit spoiled by the speed of delivery to market and having that independence and being able to do everything yourself. And the, some of the prospects of even just waiting what might be you know, easily two years or so to get a book out can be a little bit daunting if, if uh, I had the same manuscript and if I put it through my process, could get it out in two months or less. So it, it's just different, a different process. There's obviously negatives to doing it yourself too. And we're trying to just trying to work through all that. We will we will talk about all of that at length because I definitely want to pick your brain for tips on how those uh, authors that may be uh, listening or watching uh, are thinking about doing this uh, as an indie author. Uh, I want to get your perspective on, on how to do it well and, and do it right and also for uh, for my own edification. Yeah. Um, uh, before we do that, let's talk just a little bit about your books. Um, so let's start with the Virginia Mysteries. The the Summer of Wood, I believe, is the first book. Can you give us just kind of a, a summary of the series and, and what readers can look forward to? Sure. So the first book is called Summer of the Woods, and it's a little bit of a treasure hunt. The brothers are going. There's a can hold up a picture of it there. That so it's two brothers. That basically it started off as a bedtime story that I was telling for my kids, which is funny. You start to hear this as a as a path that some authors kind of move into things, is especially writing for children, writing for their own kids. So started off as that, and we had moved from New Jersey about eight years ago to Virginia. And sometimes when you knew you move to a new place, everything's a little bit new and exciting, and kind of has a sense of adventure and wonder. So we had some woods behind our house, and we started exploring around and my kids uh, I have three boys so they started exploring around and so I based the beginning of that off of some of our real life experiences and some of the things I used to do as a kid in the books that I used to read so they're looking for a treasure of an old 1877 Indian head scent which can be really valuable so that's kind of a, a treasure hunt that they're looking for so it started from there and then uh, I my kids seemed to like that book even though it wasn't my original intention and they showed it to their friends and um, surprisingly, a few months later, the elementary school here in Virginia that they went to used it as their school-wide reading program. So suddenly, my first book was being read by several hundred more families, and they seemed to enjoy it. And it seemed like I kind of got onto something, especially with the Virginia piece of things. So I decided to make it into a series, which is called The Virginia Mysteries. And it really combines those two of my favorite things, some of those adventures and books that I used to read when I was a kid with some of this fun Virginia history that I was learning about and my kids were learning about in school. So there's seven books in the series now and each one 
especially after Summer of the Woods, they got a little bit more specifically set at different historical sites. So for example, um, you know, one place that's in Richmond where I live is called St. John's Church, which is the actual building where Patrick Henry gave his famous give me liberty or give me death speech. And it's in Colonial Williamsburg. And there's books that are tied into the Civil War and some old hotels that used to have alligators that lived in the hotels and the fountains in the lobby in downtown Richmond and big estates that, that uh, had lots of interesting things. And as well as recently, I'm trying to be a little bit more targeted into what students are learning about in their social studies curriculum. So the last two books that I did, one is set at Jamestown. It's called Shadows at Jamestown. So that's actually been used by a lot of classrooms, especially in Virginia, the fourth grade elementary schools study Virginia history the whole year. So it's, it's a really good fit for that particular year. So the Jamestown book was actually just picked uh, by the Virginia State Reading Association as one of their reader's choice books for next year. So it's really been a good tie-in. Yeah, so, so not a bad thing. Um, a good tie-in to, to getting it used as like a fictional complement to what classes are, are using in their, in their social studies curriculum. And then the newest book is tied in a little bit more to George Washington. It's called Spies in Mount Vernon. So it takes place in D.C. and also at Mount Vernon. And it kind of plays up on the idea that since George Washington was a spy master, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Turn that was out uh, last few years, but it was filmed in Virginia. And Outstanding really, television show, absolutely. Yeah, so that was fun. And kind of playing off the idea, what if there were still some spies lurking around uh, DC and in Mount Vernon and the, the kids, the characters in the books have to kind of track that down. And as they always seem to do in these stories, kind of stumble upon a mystery and, and go from there that they have to solve. So that's that's kind of the, the idea of how the books are set up. And I try to keep them really fast paced and, and exciting. Um, you know, boys and girls have enjoyed them a lot, which is great to see since I have boys. So that's kind of who I started writing for. But particularly, you know, we can, it's a whole nother topic, I guess, but with the reluctant readers, you know, I have a lot of really good feedback, which tend to be a little bit stereotypically boys, um, a little bit more reluctant readers than girls most of the time, I find, and trying to get them into the stories and get them into reading and finding something that they, they think is exciting. And it's also a good gateway into history that sometimes kids can kind of come off thinking it's a little bit boring. But if you combine it with a fast paced kind of action adventure story, they, they pick it up. Uh, along the way, sometimes without even noticing. So that that's fun for me too. And is the um, is there a planned ending, or are you just going on so long as 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 you're getting readers for them? Yeah, I mean the good thing is that there's tons of history out there. I mean you could say that about anywhere, but Virginia is a little bit particularly chock full of history. So I always say I could probably write 200 mystery books. Um, they're all freestanding stories. They're they're not like continuations. The kids get a few old, years older as they go along. But I don't, I don't think they're going to get past about the 11 and 13, 14 uh, ages that they are now. So there's a, there's a lot of things. And sometimes the hardest part is narrowing it down to see what is the next story going to be about. I usually try to pick the things that get me most excited and, and also can be a good tie in to what, what they're teaching in schools. But that way, uh, it, it keeps me interested. It's fun to go around and do the research of the different places uh, that I set them at. So. I don't know how many there'll be, but I, I don't plan on uh, ending it anytime soon since it seems to, to still be doing well. That's outstanding. And that it makes perfect sense that you would want to publish that there locally where you have that built-in audience as opposed to uh, going with a traditional publisher and, and, and doing a wider national release. Not that they wouldn't uh, have appeal uh, nationally, uh, mm -hmm. but that if you've got that built-in marketing, you've already built it for yourself. Why not keep you know 70% of the profit 
Yeah, I think it's good. And, you know, I, I speak to authors about how they're trying to start their, their career sometimes and things. And I think that the idea of having a niche and whether it's the local history or, you know, superheroes or, or whatever you want it to be and using that as your starting point and then kind of building it out from there. It's one of the great things about with online retailers and everything else. If you can get the, moment, the momentum going, um, that local area can be a little bit like your reader uh, group or, or a particular sub-genre of, of readers that can then build on and help with reviews and help with getting adoption and then it starts to pick up in the algorithms and a, lo a lot of things can kind of snowball from there. So it, it's worked well. So you mentioned there's you know, obviously um, um, all of uh, history is, is available at your disposal in some sense. Um, how do you go about choosing one historical event over another to center a mystery around? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there is a lot to choose from. Um, one of the cool things about Virginia history is a lot of Virginia history, early Virginia history is also key U.S. history. Um, so that that's good. But I, like I said, I, a lot of it I, I pick on what do I find interesting. I, I always say, you know, if you're writing about something, especially if you're starting out writing and you write about something you know and you enjoy, you know, that passion is going to pour out on the page. Um, and, and so I think if you start there and you pick a topic that you think is really exciting, I'm always on the lookout for just little nuggets of history and facts that I can work into the story. And I think that if you go that route, then, you know, lately, like I said, the last two books, I've been a little bit more intentional about finding topics that are particular concentrations in schools so that it's it really merges both things of, of my interest and excitement with what schools are naturally studying. So it, it kind of makes it an easy thing for them to pick up and, and try to get it more into schools. Um, you know, one of the things I've found, I'm sure you've seen this too, it, it's really central across any kind of kids' books is there's pros and cons of writing for kids because there's always more kids coming, but you only have a certain number of years of the window of when they're cycling through. So I found the more you can kind of institutionalize your books, whether it's with schools or school systems or bookstores or, you know, libraries, whatever it might be, that way, as the new batch of kids comes through, you're still going to be top of mind and you can be someone that hopefully is going to continue to to gain uh, adoption over the years, even as the next batch of kids come up. That is smart. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning so much already. Um, when uh when you are deciding, because you've written some other, uh, another series as well, when you're, as well as a standalone, when you're looking at writing either a standalone or a series novel, how do you typically determine which is which? About which one to write next? Right, yeah, well, or if, if you're writing what I think Tommy Greenwald called his premise novel, the first uh, book in a series, when do you know if the first book is a standalone novel or if it's going to be the, the beginning of a series? Yeah, that's a good question. The only uh, only standalone I've written is actually I've written one novel for adults um, under a pen name, um, and that's the only one. Just as a to try to to write that way. So the other books for the kids um, have have both been series, and I think the the second series called Brother Wars it actually started as a a couple short stories. So I had had started having just a little bit of a dabble to see is this something that I think would be interesting, and then as I got a little bit more along the line. I realized it, it's another fun way to do it. So I, I, I break it up a little bit. The, the Brother Wars series is actually written in the first person versus the mystery series is in the third person. So 
it's a different style of writing. It tells the story from a little bit different perspective. It frees me up a little bit. As much as I love the Virginia history, it does box you, you in to being in Virginia and doing the historical pieces. So like in Brother Wars, it's a little bit more open-ended. They can just kind of have independent adventures. They can be in different places like New York City or, or different spots. And, and it allows me to pull in different places that I've been or that I might find uh, fun to, to talk about. So how do you uh, market Brother Wars differently than from the Virginia Mysteries since you don't have the same built-in educational push? I assume. Yeah, so I think it, it definitely hasn't had the same level of uptick as the mystery series has. And, and for, that's one of those reasons. But I think it's nice. It's been easier to get adoption to that because I've already had the success of the mystery series. So when I'm at schools or if I'm at a book signing or something, I'll have all the all the books there. And then if kids haven't read one, you know, the new series, is this, oh, this is something else that you can see or if you've already read all the mysteries. Um, again, with Amazon and things, it shows you your author page and also bots and all that. So there is some some carryover. Um, and even with advertising on Amazon and that I'm doing more of, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, all those things are just kind of techniques to kind of bring it along. But it's always easier if you have something established to then have secondary pieces, I think, do better. But, um, you know, it, it definitely doesn't do as well as the mystery series. But I think I just put the third book out a couple months ago. So it's it kind of gradually takes hold. And I think that's one of the things about independent publishing that's a little bit different than your traditional path is that you know when a big publisher is putting out a new book, obviously the, the normal way to do it is it comes out in hardcover and that the big release push and all that going on at the bookstores and, and all the efforts when it's in the original hardback release. And I actually have all my books also available in hardback. Um, but at the same time, I think you have the luxury of a little bit more of a slow build over time so sometimes that first month may not be very great, which would be a big problem if you were traditionally published, but it allows you to kind of slowly get adoption as more people find out about it, then it kind of, again, snowballs as you go along. So, you know, I'm seeing more uptick even in like my first book of the mystery series today, which came out, which is almost six years old than I did when it came out six years ago or even three or four years ago. So sometimes that adoption, and, and that's the benefit of writing a series, I think, is that when someone latches onto something, they love the fact that there's more behind it to be able to look at. If I like this book, then there's six more books that I can read, or, or two more books, depending on which series you're talking about, which is a, which is a good thing. Yeah, no, I've talked with uh, some voracious readers that if they find out a novel's a standalone, eh, I'm less interested. Let me get excited and let me really dig in. What have, what have you got for me? Yeah, and I, th I think if you if you focus on the on really building the series and, and really cross promoting, like I mentioned, the fact that I do have one book for adults, which you know I I like a lot, and people that have read it have enjoyed it, but it really hasn't sold very many copies at all, and I've kind of pulled back from doing a lot of advertising. And it's funny because I look at the techniques and the tactics I've used for the middle grade pieces, and one of the reasons that it started to do better is because there's more books and it's a series and things are happening. And none of those things exist for the adult book. And and I think that has a big reason behind why it hasn't had the same uptick. I think down the road, I'd love to write some more in the in the years ahead. And probably after I get another couple books to go with it, or even if it's not in the same series, just to say that in this author, there's other books that you could read if you like this book. I think that will lend itself to having more adoption, even if it's a few years from now. I think the great thing you know, books aren't going anywhere, and especially with the fact that they're available online now, 
it's not like in the past where if you don't get that that's those sales right away two years from now you might not be able to find it they're going to be there which which is great so try not to get too worried about it right away if, if you don't sell a lot of books in the first three months you know there's plenty of time and you can always come up with new strategies for your backlist and find ways to to get it going maybe down the road Yes, uh, one of the many nice things about indie publishing is I know uh, traditionally publishing varies a little bit from house to house, but typically with bookstores, you have about a six month window, sometimes less, where let's get it done, let's get it done now. That determines whether or not you get a second or third printing, where you're going to, where you're, uh, how many books are going to be available, um, how long the ebook is going to continue to be promoted, versus if it's your book, it's your IP. There is no backlist that is available forever right there at the front for that new crop of readers every couple of years to come in. And I'm assuming uh, when I read the uh, the Virginia Mysteries, I didn't I, I wouldn't go so far as to call them completely timeless, but they're not set so specific that they couldn't be picked up today. I know this is happening now or, or very soon. Right. Yeah, that's, that's that's the way I try to do it. I, there's some instances, even as they get a little bit older, you, you almost can't write a story without having the kids have some technology and be texting or different things. But I try not to make that the main focus of the story so that it has a little bit of that, like you said, that timeless feel. I think even with the covers, sometimes one of my ideas is to make them a little bit Hardy Boy-esque so that when the the parents or grandparents are buying them, you know, it kind of pulls back a little nostalgia to say, oh, this is something that kind of reminds me of maybe something that I read, but then also making them exciting enough so that today's kids are still going to be interested in getting them. So, yeah, I think the more you can make them, you know, it may not, it may not be forever evergreen, but, you know, there, there's an evergreen nature to books and having them there that hopefully in five or 10 years, they'll be just as interesting for kids as they are today. That's smart because there you are marketing, uh, not just to the kids, uh, but to the people who may ultimately be some of the decision makers along the way, because the grandparents and the parents that have the money that can maybe buy the books. If you're uh, roping them in as well, that's just smart. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, uh, you hear that talked about a lot, as particularly at this age group, is that the, the kids, if you're trying to sell to a 10-year-old or, or, or that's your reader or your target reader, they're not the ones buying it unless they happen to be in the bookstore looking at the shelves or looking over their parents' shoulder on Amazon. So you have to find a way to both get them excited about it. And there's a lot of ways you can do that separately, but also making it something that the parents are going to be interested in, attracted to and, uh, and get them to make the purchase. And then hopefully when the kid starts reading it, they're going to be uh, enjoying it as well. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about just the book and then I'm going to uh, pick your brain all kinds of uh, questions about marketing and, and, and how you've been able to do what you've done. Yeah. Uh, but just in talking about the book, what are what would you say are the best qualities uh, for a middle grade detective? You know, I try to make them very so that very fast paced and exciting, but also, again, the history piece is, is kind of a, a key, key aspect of the story. So. Um, Again, I mentioned I have three boys, so my kids are, are now at this age, they're 15. Uh, tomorrow, the middle one will be 14 and, and almost 10. So they're a little bit older than when I started writing. But, you know, I try to use that that tone and, and I'm around kind of the banter. And that's when I first started the series. A lot of the feedback I got was the tone that you have of the way the brothers are talking to each other, the way they interact, the way they fight and argue or tease each other. You know that was very spot on so i think being whether you have kids or not or you, you know find a way that you can be around kids and listen to the way they interact and i think that's a piece 
you know, it doesn't necessarily have to do the mystery to your question, but I think that's a key part that needs to come off authentic. And I think if you're not in that space, whatever way you can, you know, appropriately be in that space, um, that, that, that's, that could be a problem if you don't have, you know, crystal clear recall of exactly what it felt like to be a kid. Um, but I think having, you know, something to solve, I think a mystery is sometimes my books are as much adventures, I think, as they are mysteries, but I think having that extra layer of mystery just gives you one more thing in your favor of having another way to pull people through the story. So not only are they exciting and they're kind of little quasi thrillers in a way, some books, but also something needs to be solved and it's just another thing to keep moving along. So I think making the kids authentic, having them interact and, and, you know, playing up the characters. Um, the first book I did, Summer of the Woods, has two brothers. And again, I wrote it for my kids. And then a lot of girls read the book and they said, we love the book, but how come other than the mom, there's no girls in the story? And I kind of was like, oh no, there's no girls in the story. Um, so in the second book, you know, I introduced a third character. Her name's Caitlin and she's one of the brother's classmates. So again, de developing the character, she's super smart and she's a really big part of, of the team of solving mysteries. And and finding ways to play off of them. And, and the more, that's the, the other benefit I think of a series, the more you go into the series, the more you start to understand your characters are kind of like people that you know, and okay, Sam, the younger brother would act this way and the other brother is kind of a little bit more adventurous, but a little bit goofy and, and makes jokes and and Caitlin kind of puts up with them and, and, and helps figure out some of the technical pieces. So there's, you know, you can do that whatever way you have your characters, but I think making it sound something that kids can relate to and, and keeping it, fast paced, you know, I'll go back to that. That that's been important for, for my books. I want to definitely talk about pacing, but real quick, do you have like a uh, a serious Bible or a listing someplace where you keep track of what the characters have done and what their backstory is and all that kind of stuff? Or is it all up here? Yeah, I don't. It probably would be a good idea, especially sometimes you don't realize that stuff until you get a little bit further down the road with the series. But for the most part, there's not anything you know, completely off the wall. So I, I have a pretty good sense of what they will do. Sometimes I need to remember, okay, this that book said that Caitlin's on the swim team. So I need to make sure that if I'm referencing that, you know, um, but for the most part, because each book is, is kind of a freestanding mystery. So they're kind of tied into specific places um, and topics. I do have some recurring side characters like the old neighbor comes into a few stories and there's a professor that helps them with some of the like the archaeology of Jamestown or some of the, the old coins that they find. So there's, they, they kind of conveniently have some of these acquaintance, acquaintances that help them out with some things or, uh, or that type of thing. But just kind of usually they're all, I think, as in your character toolbox in a series. And you think of what's, what's an authentic but also a helpful way to use some of this collection of people that are now in your series that you can call on uh, to best represent and best tell the story that you want to tell. I, so, I should probably write something down. That would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you're doing it just fine the way you're doing it. Um, it. Random question, as we've been talking, do you keep your series so that if some difficult reader, and there, there's always a few, uh, decides to start with book six rather than book one, um, that they can immediately access the, the story without uh, too badly spoiling the previous five books? Yeah, I do try to make it that way. I, I will have 
especially as the series gotten longer. There are little parts where they say, oh, remember when we did that thing over at the other mystery and that guy helped us? You know, just a, a little reference here and there, which I think people do like that have read the other books. It's kind of a nice little nugget to say, oh, yeah, I remember that book. But then if someone's reading it for new, it's still not too jarring and it won't throw them off. And, and I think it says on the front cover of the book, like the Jamestown book is book six. But I also try in the description on Amazon and on the book pages to say, you know, these can be read as freestanding stories. So so it's it's kind of walking a fine line, but they're definitely not continuations like a fantasy series where if you didn't read the first one, you'd have no idea why, you know, some crazy thing is happening. They're 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 pretty episodic in terms of of uh, kind of like the, the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew types of things. They're just individual mysteries that need to be solved. Just thinking that I had a uh, best friend uh, growing up, and he was dyslexic, and, and reading was uh, very difficult for him. So his mother went to a, a half-price bookshop and bought, I think, fifty of the uh, Hardy Boys books. Oh wow! And that was uh, his big birthday gift. So it was the challenge to him to get through them. And by God, he got through all of them. And then every week they were going back and getting a couple more uh, to keep him reading. And then he loaned them to me, and I read them all as well. Nice. And, so um, let's talk a little bit about uh, pacing. Um, what um, what tips do you have for authors um, that are looking to increase their pace? I usually try to find, I mean, there's a few different things. I think what I, one of the harder things for me is I tend to a little bit more, and I've tried to adjust this as I started writing. Sometimes I'll do a little bit of a long introduction. So in the way I usually have in my mind, there's a few things. I, I watch a lot of movies as well. And sometimes I kind of think of how can I make the book kind of play like a movie in your mind? And that, that's kind of, you know, one of one of my favorite things to say when I go to, to classrooms is you know, the great thing about book is if you're doing it the right way and there's enough detail and description, it's it's almost like you're inside the book. You know, and that and that's something I think kids can relate to. But in my mind, I'm usually kind of thinking. One of the the movie um, series that I enjoy a lot over the years is some of the James, like James Bond or something. And and what in the beginning of James Bond, you know, before the intro sequence, there's always some big exciting scene, you know, that happens and that kind of gets you into it. So that's one. Most of the books I do try to have a kind of something happening right away, and then that's kind of the wow, it gets your attention, and then kind of slowly get into what's the mystery going to be, and then. Kind of getting a, a few nuggets there and then i always try to make the last third of the book very exciting so i think having an exciting ending that kids can kind of have pulling them through and keep them reading um that, that that's important i think to to try to get the pacing there so if i find that my heart is beating and i'm typing really fast you know that's always a good sign and, and I, I talk to kids a lot about doing rough drafts and and not trying to make them perfect as you go through and i think a lot of writers have that same problem is they keep going back and they don't finish. And I find the more I can type quickly and start making even just some shorthand notations as I'm typing and not worry about every little detail. And if I'm in a really big action scene and something's happening quickly, I may just not even start writing full sentences just to get the ideas down and maintain that sense of excitement and action. I think that that's really important to kind of have that fast pace uh, going. So that that's some of the, the techniques that I use just to kind of get it going. And then you can go back and clean it up. I, I, I say to kids all the time, there's a reason I'm a writer and not like a concert pianist up on stage talking to you. Because if I really mess something up in a song, you tell right away it would sound terrible. You cover your ears and you wouldn't want me to keep playing. But I make mistakes all the time in my books, but you don't see them most hopefully. 
because the writing process is so great that you can go back, you know, all the editing and revising and everything. But I think getting those initial tracks down and that sense of excitement and, and kind of drama that way, um, for me, it, it is is important. And, and I, again, going back to like what I said of, if I'm really excited about it, I think that nine times out of 10, it's gonna bleed through on the page to the reader. So that, those are some of the things. Well, obviously I'm only ever doing one draft because I'm taking divine dictation, but I'm fascinated about how other writers work. <laughs> right, yeah. I wish. Um, so how long does that initial draft take, especially if you're, you're not even writing full sentences just to get through it? If on a good, a good draft, I usually can get the first draft done in a month, um, depending on how much, you know, it, depending on how much my schedule that's changed over the years as I've started doing it full time. Um, Sometimes it'll be two months, depending on how much research I had to do or how much I'm really kind of slogging through it at a particular time. But that that's usually about that month or two of, of getting the story down. And I'll go back, you know, once I'm really into the first third of the book that I have, usually once I get into it, I'm, I'm set. That very beginning part for me is the hardest part to try to see exactly where it's gonna go. And and the, the more that I've written, the more I've, I still pants a lot, but I, I, I plan things out more now than I used to because I've found that while you still want it to be um, exciting and, and, and imaginative and kind of surprise you along the way, there is a lot of benefits to planning out where the story could go. And it, it can help, it helps me, I found, have a little bit more complicated and interesting plot line. If you can say, you know, at the very least, you know, here are some of the landmarks along the way that you know you want to hit and you may change a little bit the way you're going to get there. But these, this is generally some of the big ideas. And you might come up with some new ones as you go. But that's that's helpful to kind of plan it out a little bit more. So you're not doing like a Jeffrey Deaver, seven, eight page, I think 20 page outline that tells you exactly what's going to happen every chapter? No, I, I cannot do, I, I don't have that much uh, preparation uh, patience, I think. So I, I do, you know, I'll have, Usually I do a lot of my planning actually by hand. I'm, I'm a pretty fast, I say one of the best classes I took in high school was a typing class, so I can type pretty fast, but I still do my planning for the most part by hand in a notebook just because it helps me. And I might make some little boxes to say, okay, this is gonna happen and it goes from here to here to here, just to map out storyboard it a little bit just with some really crude you know, uh, scribbles. But it helps me give a sense of, okay, this is logically where it's gonna go in my mind so that when I sit down to write it, I kind of generally know what's going to happen and then just kind of go from there. Do you know uh, your ending? I usually know generally what's going to happen. So I think I, I know I want it to be exciting. I generally kind of know, okay, there's going to be this big chase and the bad guy or whoever, whatever's going to happen is going to kind of have this happen to them. And they're not, they're going to, they're going to have it in this particular location and it'll kind of be dark and they have to hide over here, you know, things like that. Um, but then exactly how you get there, that, that's sometimes I'll figure that as I go. But I think that's, that's you know, one of those six or seven major landmarks that I know I'm going to get to. And the ending is usually, you know, figured out ahead of time. And how often does it happen that the characters uh, change the ending for you? It has happened. That's one of the reasons, um, you know, after I do two or three drafts, I usually have either my wife or one of my kids read a draft or, or sometimes someone uh, from a critique group or something, but usually one of my family members. And there's been a couple of times where, again, one of my goals is to have it be exciting. And I've had one of the Brother Wars books, for example, I had it, it ended 
a few chapters before where it ends in the final version and I got some feedback that okay this is a little bit less than exciting compared to what I'm used to reading when you're so I'm like okay you know it's good sometimes you just can't quite see it, it seemed exciting to me but okay what could I do to amp it up a little bit and go above and beyond what just to keep somebody even more excited and and that's good feedback to have so that that's probably the the kinds of changes that I'll make sometimes just increasing the stakes a little bit more than maybe I had before so one uh, two months uh, on the initial draft and then how long do you spend in revision um, I mean, all together, I, I usually say it takes me about six months start to finish to have a book started to out available and published. So it depends on how many more um, passes I'll go through. I'll usually do a couple passes after I get it back from a reader, um, and then I'll send it off. I have a my, my copy editor that I've worked with for quite a few books now that I'll send it to. She'll make some edits. I'll go through all hers, make the edits, and then I'll do another pass just to make sure that there's nothing that changed in this after she fixed a lot of my sentence structures and things, just make sure there's just not another way to say it. Sometimes after you see the edits, because she's made some changes, you don't pick up until you read it again that, oh yeah, some word duplications or using it of certain phrases a few too many times that maybe you didn't even notice until after it was edited. So I'll do that. And then I have a final proofreader that goes through it before it goes to press. So. Yeah, probably overall, I'd say a good half a dozen edits um, all in before it's ready to publish. Oh, it shows. It was a very clean copy, oh, <laughs> which is essential. Um, uh, what was my, I, I'm just marveling at the idea of allowing your copy editor to actually make the changes. I, I'm not that trusting. I'll, I'll let her do track changes and tell me what changes need to make <laughs> in case my divine dictation didn't, didn't quite go as planned. Uh, and and I, did, I, I, I'm joking, of course. I do uh, yeah. about 15 to 20 drafts every book. Yeah, she does. She does do. We do do it with track changes, so that way I can see what it is. But I found in the first couple books, you know, uh, you get a little bit hesitant, like, well, maybe this isn't right. I knew what I was talking about, but not more than nine times out of ten, I'd say, you know, 98% of the time, some every once in a while, she didn't quite pick up on what I was trying to say. So I won't necessarily go with her change, but. Um, Usually that means, even if I don't like what she changed, it usually means there's another way that I could rewrite that to say what I was trying to say. If I find if you have to look at a sentence too many times, there's something wrong with that sentence and, and or, a, or a plot idea or something, and you need to go back and just kind of rework that. Because if it's that hard to get it to work right, then it probably needs to just be kind of torn down and built back up to make, to make it structured a little bit better. Have you got a regular critique group that you're, you're working with as well? I have at times over the years. Um, there's a lot of great writers in the in Virginia and in Richmond in particular. Um, so there's a few different children's writers groups that I've been a part of. So it, it's hard. One of the challenges I found is that a lot of writers, as we talked about, are going the traditional route. So I find I'm moving a little faster than most other people kind of in my circles. So whereas like if we met once a month and you'd give a chapter or two for people to, to critique of each other, which is, which is great, and I've done that a lot, but then by the next month, depending on the, the cycle I'm in right there, I may be on to the next book, um, and so that's great to get some feedback on a chapter or two, but I, I need a little bit more than that. So, you know, it is something when we've been meeting, it's been great, and it's good. It's another example of getting good feedback from people and being able to share the same, but I think depending on your publishing schedule, it can be, it's hard to ask someone to read 
just for as a critique group or, or kind of for fun or as your friend, a whole book on a fairly fast paced um, schedule versus just a few chapters. Because it's unless you're doing it, you know, it's not a picture book. Um, so it, it just it's a lot of, of time investment for somebody to just do on the side, I found. So I'd rather generally pay editors and proofreaders to be able to do it unless they're my family who I can I don't have to pay them. Uh, and, and that's that's helpful to kind of keep it moving. Yeah, I'm married. Well, my my wife is a, uh, a professional copy editor, uh, among other uh, talents. Um, Great. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. That comes in handy, and then I, I still use a copy editor. I'm not married to uh, to <laughs> keep my marriage uh, yeah. intact. Um, well, let's. I've got so many questions on the back of that. Let's let's stick with pacing for just a moment. Um, for a fast-paced middle grade mystery, what? Uh, is the average chapter length that you're shooting for and what's the average book length that you're shooting for? So generally my chapters are about between a thousand and two thousand words. So that's a little bit of a broad range um, But there's some chapters I'll have that'll be a little bit less than a thousand. I generally don't go over two thousand um, it, it the way that I write it just kind of seems natural that they usually break around 1500 words or so, you know, right in the middle there. And I just think that's that's kind of the the bandwidth of my thought process of when I'm kind of creating scenes and, and situations. And I try to break them. That's another thing I've learned a little bit over the years is trying to be a little bit more intentional about where the chapter breaks are and not necessarily always just where the scene is ending. But, you know, you don't want to go overboard and just have an ultra dramatic cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. But I think if you can make some or a lot of those chapters again, make it hard for the person not to keep reading. Um, that's a little bit of an art that I think you've, I've learned. I'm still learning, but I, I've learned a little bit over the years of trying to, where do you where do you stop that chapter and take a breath, but also so you're still pulling somebody in. So um, that's, that's a general length. In terms of book length, it's the more I've written, the generally the longer they've gotten. So Summer of the Woods, my first book was only about 19,000 words. So a little bit on the shorter side. And again, I, I was really figuring that all out as I was going when I wrote that. Um, the most recent mystery book, Spies in Mount Vernon, was about 39,000 words. So that's that between, you know, roughly between 20 and 40,000 words is what the series is. Um, Brother Wars is kind of the same. The first book, which was is actually about maybe 17 or 18,000 words. So it's a little bit shorter. And uh, the longest one's about thirty-six thousand words, so in that in that general range. And that keeps them short and sweet. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend a lot of people I talk to. I, I don't tend to be the kind of person that has to cut a lot of stuff. I, I I tend to write fairly succinctly and on the shorter side. Some people I talk to, they say, "Oh, I keep writing one hundred twenty thousand word books, and I'd love to write seventy-five thousand word books." Yeah, I don't think I'll ever have that problem. The adult novel I wrote. You know, it started when I sent it to an editor, it was about 60,000 words and it ended up being about 75,000 words. But it's still, I, I personally can't imagine writing, you know, something over 100,000 words. It just seems, uh, it seems harder for me to keep my own attention span. Um, not that I don't read some things. Yeah, I, I'm sure that sounds long. How many, how many thousand words is that? I'd have to look it up, but I think all five books together in a compilation like this. We're talking about the Book of David for those of you listening on the on the podcast. Um, I think it was just over three hundred thousand, something crazy. Wow. Yeah, that's that's impressive. I had a lot to say on that subject. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know that tends you start to find a little bit about your own personal 
style and, and I tend to be a little bit on the shorter side and, and there's pros and cons to that, but that's I, the more that I back to the planning, it helps me get a little bit on the longer side. If I'm planning out, okay, here's the different things that are happening. And I think the more experience that you get, you know, it could go the other way. Maybe if you tend to write too long, you, the more experience you start to make a little bit more concise and you know what to trim and whatnot, what little side, side routes not to go down. You know, I'm starting to find ways to, to make it a little bit more, more complicated storylines and, and different characters and just to give a little bit, make it a little bit juicier and longer for readers to, to get through. Well, I've gone from shorter books to now longer books to I'm trying to get back to shorter because I think the first Banneker was right around 56,000. Uh, and the second one, we'll see what the final, final draft and ends up being once the uh, copy editor's done with it here. Um, but at one point was 150,000 words. And I have lost my mind. That is way, wow. <laughs> that's yeah. way too long. That's so we, we will be closer to, to between 70 and 80 uh, when we get to final. I had to relearn how to write middle grade after indulging myself for five uh, adult uh, horror novels where I could get away with 300 plus uh, thousand words. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think you, know, you do read a lot of middle grade and, and different different books are, are, are all different lengths. And that's another thing I think that going the indie route gives you a little bit more flexibility is if you think the story is good. I mean, there's a lot of old, especially older books that you look at stories and they're not super long. Um, and I think sometimes people get a little bit too caught up, especially if they're trying to fit a mold of what they think the publishing industry wants it to be. Well, if I'm doing this genre of book, it has to be this amount of length. And maybe that is something good to shoot for. But if you're telling a story and you're telling a great story and it comes in at 50,000 words, then maybe that's what it needs to be. Um, and particularly, I think the more books you write, the more comfortable you get in saying, well, this is not the be all end all. This is one book. This is one you know, you don't want to be crass about it because it, it has a lot of heart and art and soul to it. But this is one product that I'm creating and I'm going to have a lot more products that I'm going to write, a lot more stories that are in me. And I found the more you do, you don't get quite as hung up on the fact that this is my book. You know, your first time or first few books, it's they're still important, but you realize that you know there's a lot of different stories to be told. And this is one narrow path that this story is about. And I'm going to be able to get into some other ideas later on down the road with other books that I'm going to write. So that, that's at least the way that I look at it. Oh, I'm working on uh, book number 11 and they've still all, they're all my, my heart's on my sleeve. Here it is a whole piece of my soul just for you. Yeah. And in fact, I'm uh, when I finish the, the uh, 11th book, uh, my plan is to do something under a pen name uh, and to intentionally take myself completely out of it so I can work on let's create just a product just for the exercise of doing it and what I what I hope to learn from that. So. Yeah, I think there, there's you obviously want to be able to have your passion and your heart in it. And, and I didn't mean to say that it's not, but I think that, you know, there's pros and cons as well of, of how deep on either side. You don't want it to just be some lifeless product that you're just trying to get out there and put on the shelves. So Oh yeah, no, no, no inference. You don't reach seven books in a series without some passion and some heart. <laughs> yeah. So it's like most things in life, it's a little bit of in the middle, I think, is is a good place to be. And I don't know if you're uh, allowed to talk about this, but I had read on your website that there had been some potential movie interest for the Virginia Mysteries. Yeah, so that was a really um, exciting and also surprising thing that happened a couple of years ago. So I, I actually got a, a message out of the blue from someone in, in town that 
Um, his son, actually another one of these kind of reluctant readers that we talked about before, who never really could get through a book and didn't really like to read and had picked up Summer of the Woods, my first book in, in one of the, uh, the local indie bookshops uh, in town and suddenly buzzed through it in like two days. And his dad was mystified as to how this could have happened. So he said, what book is you reading? And he showed it to him and he said, dad, this would make a really good movie. And so it turns out this person is a film is a, a has a video production company and does a lot of commercials and has done some different films and had been wanting to, to get into and do kind of a, a family uh, friendly film that the way we described it is kind of in between like an animated Disney movie, which is sometimes not what adults are going to be interested in and something that is not quite as intense as scary as something like Stranger Things, which was really, uh, you know, big at the time. Um, so some, somewhere in between there, which is, is, is right in that middle grade kind of range. Um, so yeah, so he reached out to me and we talked about it and, and, uh, I optioned the, the book there and it's, it's a long process. It's it's a little bit different because it's more that you know appropriately the indie route as well versus being a big studio kind of production. So the script is being developed and and uh, kind of staying in the loop on that and kind of gradually we're getting to the point where I think hopefully um, by next summer or somewhere around there we'll we'll look at being able to start kind of moving forward in production. So I'm not super involved in it. They're very good about keeping me in the loop as to kind of where things are at, but it's a whole nother whole nother beast, if you will, in terms of its own entity. Uh, but I think I'm flattered and it, it's not I figure it's nothing but a positive thing to have another way to for people to get tapped into things related to the stories. Certainly can't hurt. <laughs> yeah, so you never, I mean, it, just as a little bit of an aside, I mean, it, it kind of falls into the category. I say this a lot when I talk to writers um, in, in new writers, particularly, is inevitably, and this is very common and understandable, I think people get very hung up on being afraid to share their stories and their ideas and put them out into the world. And um, a lot of new writers say they have you know, several books in their drawer or on their hard drive or they just don't know what to do. And I think it doesn't mean that indie publishing is the right for, thing for everyone to do. And it doesn't mean by any means that what you put out there is going to be an immediate success or even that first book or two could be, may not be a success. But I found, and I think having a little bit of, of history had shown me that being able to put something out there and trying it and put it into the world and see what happens, you know, what you do know is that nothing's gonna happen if you don't put it out there. And I think sometimes people can get a little bit hesitant and you, a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time and seeing what happens. But it's amazing how people that are out there and persistent in trying things and really working it, good things tend to happen more there than if you're really holding back and not, not trying new things. So not, not being afraid to fail, I think, is, is a really important thing in every walk of life. Um, but it, it applies a lot to, to writing and, and putting your books out in the world. And given the fact that there is a path now that didn't exist, and 10, 15, 20 years ago, or all you know, years before that, it, it gives you an easier way to to do that, and and you never know what can happen. So that that's fun for me to see and try to encourage people that to, to maybe take a step forward if it's the right thing for them, and and give it a try, and not always be kind of afraid of exactly what might happen um, because you never know. It's the greatest time in the history of the world, I think, to be an author. Never, never been anything like the time we're living through. Never had the access to as many readers as we have. Never had the tools available to us to do it from home in our pajamas a lot of times. Yeah, exactly. Outstanding. It's a good thing. 
Well, I want to talk to you a whole bunch about uh, marketing and about how you put together your team that you're using to, 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 to fully be an indie publisher as opposed to a self-publishing person that does everything just themselves. Um, but before I do that, uh, esteemed audience is just counting down the moments until I ask each guest, Stephen K. Smith, do you believe in flying saucers? And if so, have you seen one? <laughs> So I knew this was coming, and I feel like a, a real downer here if I say no. Um, but I, I probably fall into the camp of I, I, I don't think so, and uh, have not seen any, and am not out there actively looking for them. So that's not a super exciting answer. But maybe, maybe uh, someday it'll, something will change my mind. But probably not would be my answer. It's an honest answer. <laughs> Perhaps I'll send you some uh, literature to change your mind. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's talk about your uh, indie publishing team. So, how many people are you utilizing the services of to produce your books? So, I still have not gone the route of having a virtual assistant or anything like that. There are some days where I think it would be uh, helpful, but for the most part, the team consists of I have a copy editor who I've used on probably the last eight books. She's actually based in England, and it just happened to work out that way. I think I originally found her on some kind of a forum that listed different editing services and things. Um, and I think we've, we've matched up really well. I have a, a few different proofreaders that I've used. Um, most of the time I'll, I'll, I'll use the same one or two that, that I think seem to, to do be available and quick. So a copy editor, a proofreader, I have a gentleman in Chicago that does a great job doing the audiobook narration. So I do all the mystery series are in audio that I use through ACX. So a great guy, he's uh, named Tom McElroy and he is is a actor uh, that does some, some off-Broadway kind of things um, in Chicago. So that's a, a part of the team as well. Um, and then I have a cover designer who I've used for all of the My 10 Kids books and he does a great job, again, being available and, and consistently creating the illustrations. And especially given that my books are have with the illustrated covers, that's important to kind of have someone that can really put it in the right um, layout and design and, and make them that exciting versus a lot of some, even some kids' books, but a lot of adult books are more Photoshop and different photographs that are kind of pieced together. So doing the illustrated work. Uh, helps since I am not in any way an artist and uh, need to rely on that. So I think those what is that? Those four people are really the, the key, the key folks, um, you know, outside of my accountant and things like that, but that's uh, more just tax kind of stuff. So that that's the core of the team. And then, um, you know, a lot of the other things I, I, I tend to do myself between getting out there and a lot of his feet on the street and trying to get into bookstores and schools and, one of the great things about writing about different historic locations is it gives you a really easy opening as long as the book is favorable, which which mine are all very complimentary to different places like Jamestown or Mount Vernon. So I've got the books are in the gift shops there and I've gotten to know the people that work there. And so it's kind of a neat connection to have there too. So those are, you know, definitely partners and part of the team are these uh, people at the historical places and the bookstore owners and the teachers and librarians. I think those are those are an important part of the team too, even if they're not kind of specific individual people on a regular basis, on a project basis, or or ways to help get adoption. They're they're important. So you kind of cultivated your your own local marketing team that you know you can go to every time you've got a new book to help you sell it. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that <clears throat> these groups are going to be carrying it. The other thing that I do is I do have a mailing list. Um, it's not thousands and thousands of people. And some of that, I think, is because of the nature of kids' books. I think it's harder to get a 20,000-person mailing list like you might have if you're doing adult thrillers or romance or something. But that still is important. It mine's probably about a thousand people or so. And one of the things I do regularly is not, I, I use the mailing list mostly just to announce when I have new books coming out or if I'm going to do um, several signings uh, around Virginia, I'll do one in the winter time and say, here's the, here's the signings I have over the, the winter months at these three or four different places. But I also develop a advanced reader team through there and I, on a combination through my newsletter and Facebook and, and contacts on Instagram and, and that kind of thing. So that when I do put a new book out, I have a process that I've developed the last six books or so, which has made a big difference on getting reviews and that type of thing. So I'll let my advanced team, which is between 100 and 150 people, know that they can get a advanced copy of it. And that helps a lot to ask if they're willing to do a review. Um, you know, it's an optional thing and everybody doesn't do it. But it's, it's helped to get the early word out and get reviews up on Amazon and, and give you a little bit of a, a faster shot out of the gate than just trying to put it out there and then see what happens. That makes sense. So how, um, how much preparation do you do for the launch of a book? Um, one of the things I developed a few books ago is I have a checklist that I made because I found, especially when I was doing more and when I basically when I went full time to doing it, I before when I was doing it part-time, I was basically doing a book a year, which kind of enough time that had passed that I just kind of figured out what, what I needed to do next. But now that I'm trying to do several books in a year, I made this checklist to see, all right, here's the 50 things that I need to do. Everything from you know, the obvious of doing the first draft to don't forget that you need to put together the email to your advanced reader team and get a poster made and all these different things so that I don't have to just remember or look back in the notebook. Okay, what did I do the last time? you know, all these different systems in place so that it's a little bit easier to say, check, 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 and here's here's what needs to happen so I don't accidentally forget something. And I think having a process or a system like that, especially if you're, if you're doing more volume of things, just makes one less thing you have to worry about and you can focus on keeping things moving ahead. So now that you're full-time, how many uh, books are you aiming for a year? You know, it's hard to know. Um, it's it's a bigger. I worked for twenty years uh, for a, a medical website company up in New York, running a sales team, um, selling the pharmaceutical company. So it's a very different process. So the after twenty years of doing that, and then doing you know being home all the time, I, I still worked from home a lot before, but having this be your sole focus, it it's harder to get your your arms and head around doing it than I expected it to be. It's, it's good. And I, I'm happy to be able to doing it, but it's still a process, uh, you know, a work in progress of figuring out exactly how it's all going to go. So I think in my mind, I have about three books a year is, is kind of what I'm shooting for. There's some people that do less than that. There's some people that do tons more than that. Um, I just don't know that if I'm prolific enough in my ideas to be able to just keep coming up with, with, that much new creativity to do five or six books a year. I, I don't think that's just my personality. So I think if I can do a, a, a few books a year, you know, whether it's two on one and four on another, just to keep things going out there. Um, again, back to that snowball idea. Every time you get a new book, it's another entry point to your, just thinking from a business standpoint, from your sales funnel and ways that they can discover you 
and all uh, different ways that people can kind of experience your product line, so to speak, and, and it gives you more out there. So even if it's two or three books, it's still a good way to, to get new people in there and kind of keeping things moving. That makes sense. And then are you planning at the start of the year, okay, these are the three books that need to come next. So I have from this date to this date to work on this one, this date to this date, and, and, and doing a formal schedule like that? Or I, is that a full errand? Yeah, I do. I have mapped out to say generally, okay, these are the three books I think I'm going to do this year. I have seen that changing a little bit more than maybe I suspected expected it to. And, and some of that's just due to life happening. Sometimes, you know, I get in a little bit bigger rut of figuring out, okay, this is not getting started as quickly as I thought it was going to be. And going back to the drawing board of figuring out all right, where, where is that story going to go? That's kind of where I'm, I'm at at the moment with the next mystery book. I've been doing a lot of research and going on, on uh, trips to, to visit different places, but still haven't really gotten into the throes of the rough draft yet. But generally, I, I, I try to map out and say this is what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, you never know. I think that can change. I'm usually of the opinion if you, you know, plan it out, but then things just like when you're writing a story things are going to change and, and be open to being flexible. I'm not super rigid and saying, well, this is exactly what has to happen. And if, I, I think it's good to have deadlines, but sometimes you need to just kind of roll with it and, and keep things moving and different parts of the year. Like right now I've been crazy busy with school visits. So last week was, uh, I think called read national read across America week. So last week and this week I've been at 12 different schools in Virginia. So it's been a lot of days of, being out of the house, and which is great, and it's fun to meet with the kids, but schedule-wise, that can be very different than a month before where I had nothing going on, and you're in your office, and you're working and trying to get the get the book done. So there, there's a lot of that that goes on, too, that, which I actually like because it mixes things up, and it's not always the same every week, but it, it does influence the schedule, and you kind of have to think ahead that, okay, the spring, if it's very busy with school visits, it may not have as much bandwidth to be able to be writing new things as, as you might have had in the wintertime. Yeah, no, during those uh, long uh, writing periods where I'd, I'm trying to get a draft done, I try to make sure I schedule at least a few things happening outside of the house to get me out of here for, for no other reason. So I'm not driving my wife crazy when she when she comes home uh, right. from working the job with the health insurance. <laughs> I'm like, right. it's just been me and the five-year-old all day. I'm so glad to have an adult to talk to. And she's like, oh, I, I've talked to adults all yeah. day. Let me sit down. <laughs> yeah, it has its moments. So I've, I've always thought that the best, one of the best paths that an author can take uh, is one, be Stephanie Meyer, have an incredible dream about vampires, get up, write it down, send it to the premier agent in New York, and then go ahead and get a, a huge book deal and a, and a movie deal. But um, if that's not available, I've thought that one of the nice backgrounds for an author is to have a job, preferably in an unrelated field. Um, and I think sales is a great uh, job. I have a background in uh, uh, financial services and financial advising, but also plenty of sales wrapped up within that because uh, yeah. it, it gets you used to how many doors you need to beat on, how many phone calls you may need to place, how many leads you have to follow up on in order to hit your monthly quota. How have you found that your background in sales informs what you do as a writer? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it is really helpful, uh, both in the sales and also just business in general. I think especially on the indie route of things, you're you're running your own small business. And, and I think marketing, and I would presume this would be very similar, even if you're traditionally published, 
you need to be your biggest advocate and you need to be out there trying to market yourself and, and develop a little bit of a thick skin uh, to know that everybody isn't going to like everything that you write and, and just be persistent and keep on working at it and try to push to, to open doors and find ways to get your, get your books out there. And, and that's a lot like whatever you're selling, you know, I think in general in life, we all have to could stand to be a little bit better salespeople for, for ourselves. I'm not kind of ever like a classic, uh, salesperson in some ways, but I think it's taught me a lot of things. And even from a presentation standpoint, I think when I go up to schools and things, being able to be a little bit more comfortable of, speaking to people and if that's something i've done over the years of of, of doing sales presentations and, and that type of experience is nothing but helpful to be able to get up there I actually find that kids are a much easier audience than uh, business people but i always say if i ever have to go back and get a real job uh someday it's gonna be hard not to uh, have people applaud when you like come in and out of the room for meetings and things because you get a little bit used to that when you go to schools and, and people talking to you um but i think it, it's helpful and i think Anytime you can can have that experience and confidence and and persistence and 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 that thick skinned uh, feeling, like I mentioned, you know, you have to have that and know that that just because it didn't go the way you wanted it to today, and this could be the same thing on submitting and querying, just keep on trying and and maybe it's something wrong with with your draft. But again, that's the, the what you hear repeatedly with people going the traditional route is. They keep trying and they were rejected how many dozen times and they keep trying and it's not you always sometimes you do need to improve your 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 craft and sometimes you need to improve your covers or your descriptions and that type of thing but sometimes it's just not the right fit for that right person whether it's the reader and and a kid who tells you that oh i don't like mysteries i just really like fantasy books and that and that's great there's no uh you know there's no warrior cats in, in my stories but but there's other kids that are going to love it. And that's, that's why there's a little bit of different books for everyone. And I think it works that way for publishers and editors and, and even teachers. Sometimes some feedback, you know, teachers think it's the greatest thing in the world. And other times, you know, you see things online or people that uh, have said, well, you know, they were just okay. And, that, and that's just the way it is. But I think not giving up and sticking with it and knowing there's enough people out there in the world, especially with the technology that we have today to reach literally billions of people. There's a lot of people, no matter how many, how obscure your audience is, that that probably will be interested in what you're interested in. It may not be enough to make a living out of it, but it, depending on what you're looking to do, that, that's one of the the things I say to when I'm teaching some of the, the self-publishing classes to people is I think the most important thing sometimes is knowing your why. Probably you know you hear that a lot, but what what are your goals? What are you trying to be? Are you trying to be a millionaire? Are you trying to be on the New York Times bestseller list? Are you trying to write something that you can have and show to your family and friends or show to your kids someday and just be a, a something in your family that everybody loves? Or you know, are you trying to, to pay the bills and make a living out of it? There's, there's lots of different ways to do it. And the more you understand what you're trying to do, that's going to influence the way you do it as well. You know, And it may influence the way you what, what you're picking to write about if you're only doing it for love then by all means do the thing that you love the most if you desperately need it to support yourself then you might have to skew a little bit more into where something that's a little bit more commercially successful so it it you know that that's a lot like sales in that way of just being a little bit realistic about what are you trying to do and there's no right or wrong you know i think whatever someone's why is that that's great and and but what you are trying to accomplish is is going to have a big impact on or should have a big impact on the way that you go about it 
and and as long as you keep those things synced, I think most people will will be a lot happier and successful. Not sure why. I mean, I think I, I, I get asked that a lot by kids when I go to, to schools too. I, I think I always say the books that I enjoyed the most were books when I was a kid. You know, sometimes I think some people are stuck in high school. I might be stuck in fourth grade sometimes where, you know, the books, some of the books that I really enjoyed, books like Where the Red Fern Grows or The Bridge to Terabithia or The Chronicles of Narnia, you know, those are kind of books that, that still I, I think really stuck with me. So when I started writing and, and now that I have kids, um, you know, that that's kind of that sweet spot when I kind of that sense of wonder. And I think if everybody closes their eyes and kind of pictures what what kind of really gets gets them going with in their imagination, their creativity, that's usually where I kind of kept falling back to. So before I started writing books, I started a blog when my youngest son was born about 10 years ago called MyVoice3.com. So I was doing blog posts about two days a week which was uh, back in the day was, was a big thing back then of doing a lot of blogs. So just kind of the, the crazy adventures of being a dad to three little boys. And, and that kind of was a big part of who I found myself in life being, you know, I have these three boys and, and my wife and our family. And, and that, that combined with kind of that feeling of remembering a lot of the things that I was reading and, and adventures when I was in fourth grade or so. I think that that really led into the why of saying this is the types of stories that I want to write. And it started as a, as a side piece that I never imagined would be able to be able to support us. Um, you know, knock on wood at the, at the moment, we're on a, we're on a six month basis at a time decision around here. Um, but I think, you know, the more I saw that and, and I, I like to often say that the business piece of it and having running a small business is, almost as much fun for me as, as the writing the books, because it's fun to kind of create something and, and see if you can make a success of it. So I think that's always been a fun part of it. And part of the why, you know, of why do I go the indie publishing route too, because it is a, that entrepreneurial kind of feel of things that, that is fun. So that kind of circled your, your question a little bit, but, but those are different elements I think of, of, of why, you know, it's kind of worked out way it has or where I've kind of focused on the direction that I have. Well, it's a big question that I just casually tossed out there. <laughs> so, well, let, let me ask you this. Um, with, uh, with indie publishing, when you're approaching um, schools, obviously, when you're approaching uh, gift shops at the different historical sites that you've written about, um, how do you overcome that uh, Sue Grafton uh, type uh, stigma against a self-published author? Well, I think one way is that, you know, you don't bring it up. And, and I think that sounds funny, but it's true. I think if you have an, you gotta say this the right way, if you have an air of confidence and you make the story good and you represent it the way you would want to represent it to, to show that this is a great book that kids will like, that, that goes a long way. Um, it's not everything. You know, I, I like to say that the, the independent bookstore in Richmond, um, great little shop called BBGB. And um, the first two books I had, I, before I did the third book, I had done my own covers and I hadn't gone really learned as much about the whole professional editing, everything. And, and looking back, they look a little bit unprofessional compared to what I think they look like now. And they kind of looked at me in, in a lot of that way that you're kind of implying of, well, okay, so yeah, who are you and, and what's the, what are these books? And this is really not the kind of thing we have. And then a, a couple of years later, after I got the covers redone 
and I had started to being a little bit more adopted at, at local schools and, and kind of got a little bit of a following and they started having people ask about my books. Suddenly we had, they, there was a different appreciation and we have a great relationship and I've got a little shelf in the store with all my books on it now. Um, but I think that all goes hand in hand, right? So you have to find a way and you have to understand how do you make this look professional? My goal is always to make my books the fact that they're not from from Random House doesn't mean anything other than that that's not on the spine. You know, other than that, you want them to be indistinguishable from what you would see at a traditionally published company. So I think that's a big part of it. And then with the schools, you know, it's it's a little bit of a of a, a little step at a time. So if you can, I usually say to folks, start with your kid. If you're trying to get into schools and start doing different things, start with your kid's school. You know, go in there, talk to their class. Don't charge any money. Talk to their class. Get some feedback. See if they like it. If they don't, figure out why and then kind of go back to the drawing board. It's like a little bit of a test audience there. But figure out what do you want to say. I don't – some some folks, especially picture books, uh, authors and things, they do a lot of reading. I almost never read for my books when I go to schools. But figure out what, what would be useful to talk to the students about about your books. So I talk a little bit about – like my story of how I became an author. I talk about some of the history and the stories and I show lots of pictures. I do a PowerPoint presentation, which I was used to doing from my, my job before. So it kind of comes naturally to using PowerPoint. So I show lots of pictures and I talk about tips for writing, about using description and doing rough drafts and you know, answering lots of questions. So what, and, and, and being observant to see what, what are you saying that the kids are laughing at? Where do they look like they're bored and they start looking out the window? You know, doing a little bit at a time, and then as you start to get some experience, and you get two or three or four schools that you've gone to, and you can get them to give you some positive feedback. Ask them, "Hey, would you mind, would you mind if I used you as a reference, or would you mind writing two or three sentences describing how you know if this is true, and if you're comfortable about it, describing how your class, your school enjoyed having me come as an author." And then it's like a lot of things; it starts to be word of mouth, and you start to hear and. You can gradually you know, maybe increase what you're charging to do school visits and things, but it starts to, to build on each other. It's a lot like, you know, selling books on Amazon. You know, the more experience you get, it does. It's that I know I've said snowball a, a dozen times here, but it starts to do that. And I think it's like that's how any small business starts to get adoption is you start to gradually get some success, some repeat customers, word of mouth, and you get better at how you're displaying your, your wares and how you're you know baking your cake. And, and, it, and it goes that way. And I think the more you can, it's hard because it's, a, it's an art and a science, right? It's a very artistic endeavor, but it also, especially if you go the indie route, it's very much a business endeavor. And the more you treat it like a business and as a, as a professional endeavor, I think a lot of the, the tactics that you see in any kind of business, um, my older kids and I have started watching this show on TV called The Profit right now, which is really interesting. You know, where they go in and he tries to overhaul people's businesses that are struggling and finding a way there's 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 a lot of things that you should do if you're trying to run a business the right way and and those are some of the principles that i think you can apply to even things like selling books or doing author visits or, or different stuff too oh i'm hearing the uh, sales background i'm smiling like, yep that's how, that's how you get it done get that referral there at the end of course <laughs> <laughs> And I also I'm always uh, tickled uh, by the notion of, uh, of someone going to a bookstore and saying, all right, excuse me, Mr. Bookstore clerk, could you show me where all the new random house books are? Those are the books I really want to read. Right. Where where are you keeping the uh, 
the Macmillan books. That's I'm I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I find that's nice because I mean it's changing even over the years. But most people and and certainly if you ask any kid, you know, ninety nine percent of them aren't going to worry about. They might know that they got the book at the Scholastic Book Fair at their school, but other than that, you know, they're they're not really aware. They they might know the author's name, they might know the series name, they might know that they like you know books about Greek mythology, but they don't worry about you know who's publishing it unless they can tell that it's not the standard that they're used to, and and then that's a problem. But but they're you know think of it from their perspective and and try to make it as good as it can be, and 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 you know don't get too hung up on the other things unless. If there's a problem, then try to adjust and see how you can kind of come at that from a different angle. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I find if you keep trying as many different things as you can, the things that don't work out, don't do them again and try to find something else and keep doing the things that are working. And, uh, you know, it, over time, it starts to go in the right direction. It's one of the many advantages of, of, of indie publishing is, you know, if I talk with one of my traditionally published friends and they find a, a typo in the final book that's in stores, it's, I guess, weep, just weep forever because that, that, that right. typo was now a part of it. Whereas if you're an indie author and, you know, you try to avoid ever having a typo, but if one is brought to your attention, okay, less than 24 hours later, no one is ever going to experience that book with that typo again. It's done. It's, it's, it's the past. And I've changed a couple of covers as well. And it really allows an author to evolve as you get better at what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. You know, the only time I have for, especially since I do a lot of um, sell books to schools and festivals and different conferences, I've started buying um, the mystery series kind of in bulk orders uh, from Ingram Spark to try to save on, on cost. So I, I get them kind of on a, on a pallet on the back of a big truck. So I get like 750 at a time. So I got to, a big hallway of books down the, around the corner. But other than those, once, you know, if you have a typo, but you're right. I mean, you can have it fixed by the next day and, and uh, no one's the wiser. So it's, it's very nice that way. And you have to stay on top of it, right? You can't just kind of sit back and, well, I did that and never worry about sales or not worry about updating your pages and the back matter and stuff. You have to stay on top of it. Um, but it, but it is doable and it's all within your control versus the other way. You're right. And sometimes it's just, well, I wish I could do something, but, I'm having a hard enough time getting boxes of books for my publisher so I can go and go to this event I want to do. So it's nice not having to worry about that. So that's, uh, what is the perfect uh, time frame for a school visit or is there one? Um, I don't know about, so in terms of length and things, so my, my assemblies are usually about 45 minutes, which usually is about um, 35 minutes of me talking. And again, I try to do it, a lot of slides and keep it interac interactive. I'm not an author illustrator where sometimes I hear people get up there and they start drawing pictures and all kinds of really fascinating things to keep their attention. So I don't have that luxury, but then allowing enough time for lots of questions. Kids ask, it's always fun. Almost every school, somebody asks a new question that I haven't heard before. And it's not just about, you know, what's my dog's name or what kind of pizza I like, but you know, what different elements of how you write your books. I mean, kids are smart and they're always looking to find things out. So that that's the general time range. And then some schools I go to and I, I've had schools where I've talked to the entire school in the gym in one session. Um, I've had schools where you, I just speak to like the fourth grade and they split it up into two or three parts in the library and everything in between with grade levels and things. Um, but I think it's great. I don't remember ever having any authors come to my school when I was a kid. And I think there's something about books that's harder sometimes for kids to get their heads around the fact that there's an actual person behind this book that wrote it and that being an author is actually a career 
whether it's full-time or part-time or a profession that you can have as a kid. And I think it's different than, you know, not that it's the same, but somehow they can see musicians and other artists and, and movies and actors and things. It's easier for them to see that there's someone doing that versus a book is just this thing sometimes that I read and, and having them, having them, be able to, <laughs> having them be able to see that this is a real person and, and uh, you know, whatever way I might like to write or create things is something that might be within my reach it is a good thing. And I think, Every kid is not going to identify them with that, but almost every school I go to, there's a teacher that comes by and said, well, such and such a kid, you know, he asked that question. That's just incredible because they usually don't pay very much attention or they don't like to read anything or, you know, it's really hard to get them. And they seem to be really into that. And they said, I'm going to run off and get that book. And like that, that's, that's an exciting thing to see. Or when you get a, a, an email or a letter from somebody that says, you know, you, my son doesn't like to read and you they love your books and it's kind of inspired their love of reading again. I mean, what kind of other job do you have unless you're maybe a, like a doctor or something that, that it, you're going to get notes like that. So that that's a very rewarding piece of it that I think writing for kids, you see it's the only experience I have, but I think it's probably more of that than if you're just writing for, for adults, it's a different kind of uh, feedback that you get, which is fun. Plus, I imagine it's a great opportunity to get some direct feedback from your target audience about what they like, what they don't like, how to engage them better with the next book, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's always great to see how, you know, whether it's you speaking or even just talking about things, you can, if you're in touch with what they're saying and the way they're reacting and or what their what their feedback, even their body language sometimes when you bring things up, um, that can be really helpful. Something uh, I've been wondering about because I've been going out and, and, and speaking to groups. Um, and again, it's all, all part of my scheme to get out of the house. <laughs> uh, but I, I've, I've gone out, I've taught classes, that sort of thing. Um, but every time I do that and I maybe will, you know, go to a, a Barnes and Noble and 20 people show up, 30 people show up. And I think, well, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad that we got to have this opportunity. I was looking you in the eye. Um, and I learned quite a bit that I can't learn just online in my office. But then if I, you know, I pull up my phone at the end of it and that, you know, take me an hour, hour and a half to teach, well, three hours to teach some of these uh, longer classes, uh, plus that the hour drive or two hour drive, all that good stuff. Uh, not to mention the, the taking a shower, putting on actual pants, all, all everything that goes into leaving the house and doing an event. But then I pull up my stats when I get home and I see, uh, how the blog did, how the podcast did, how the books were selling with without me having to be involved. And I, I'm, I'm forever trying to answer the question just for myself. How much effort should I be putting into in-person events versus how much effort should I be putting into increasing my online presence, which is working for me 24 hours a day while I'm watching Netflix? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, it's a great question. I mean, I think I would categorize a little bit more of what kind of events and activities are you trying to do? I think there's something beneficial to having diversified revenue streams. So if doing events, so you're not just dependent on, it's kind of like, should you go exclusive on Amazon for eBooks or should you go wide? You know, that's the big debate in a lot of the industry and things. So it's a little bit like that, but I think it depends on if you're going, if you're teaching other writers, Presumably, and I think sometimes that's where people get caught up like that. Not that writers couldn't buy your books, but it's not necessarily the audience of who you want to read your fiction. Like they, they could read your fiction, but you know, unless you have a book about how to write, then maybe that could be a, a big uptick. But I think 
that's a the way I look at it, and I haven't done I actually I'm interested in doing probably more um, speaking to writers and professionals about you know as, as another way to kind of do some teaching and things I think that's that's smart to do but I think you need to look at that almost as its own little thing that isn't going to have as much legs but it helps diversify what you're doing versus if you're <coughs> excuse me if you're speaking to a classroom like that's that's 30 little potential readers there it's almost like if you were writing um you know fantasy books and you went to comic-con or something like that that that's more of you're speaking to your reader potential readers more than a group of writers so i think you know figuring out which segment you're going after and knowing that <clears throat> these things this is more like consulting or something when you're talking to writers versus really drumming up more readers with schools or events or, con or you know, conventions or things like that. That's kind of my brilliant plan but behind the podcast is I'm bringing a writer's convention here to me uh, a couple of times a week and, and, and learning as much as I can from people who are smarter than me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and that's doing a little bit of everything. And sometimes you use that to see what takes off, right? Whether if people are doing the books or school visits or suddenly if people are loving the way you're teaching about doing publishing or the podcast there's a lot of different things and and you can kind of lean into the things that are seem to be having the most adoption but sometimes you don't ever know that unless you try them and then if you're in the position which is a good problem to have that there's there's more demand than what you have time to do then you have to make some tough choices but um, you're right there in a perfect world I think we would all lean into the the passive income of the fact that people are just buying so many of our books on Amazon that we just have to write them and then sit back and just watch the numbers go up without us lifting a finger. That's the easiest thing, right? And that's, when I, you I, figure out how to do that, you let me know. I'm going to be real interested. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that is the great thing about writing books as opposed to baking cakes. You know, every time you have to, you have a bakery and you're selling people cakes, you still have to bake each of those cakes one at a time, no matter how, you know, mechanized you have the process versus if you write a book and it takes off, yeah, there's marketing and there's efforts you have to do and maybe events and things. But for the most part, there's, I love the fact that I, when I, and I'm a little bit, it comes from the sales side, I'm a little bit crazy about each day. I have a huge spreadsheet that I track all my sales by each book and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I, I enter all that information every day because it's great and it's motivating to me. And some people it scares them, but for me, it's always been very motivating. To kind of see each day, okay, how many books of this did I sell on Amazon? How many did I? How many audiobooks did I sell? You know, how many did I sell through Ingram Spark and different places to see where you at? And oh, you know, all right, I'm a little bit down from where I thought I'd be this month, so maybe I can try to look for some other advertising or different things to do. Or if it starts to take off, that can be really exciting and kind of get you motivated to, you know, work harder and write more books and and ride that wave and keep it going. So I think if you look at it like that too, it can be helpful. Yeah, once you get to the point, I think you and I have both been doing this uh, long enough that once a day is plenty uh, to get the data and, and then move on and, and get away from the early stage. If I, I, I know when I first had my uh, blog up, it was every five minutes. Anybody else? Anybody else? And yeah. that, and then I'd, I'd suck up an hour of, uh, of time. I could be doing something far more productive. Yeah. Uh, whereas now the numbers are much, much larger and uh, once a day. And, eh, all right, good. Yeah. And, you know, every once in a while you, you get surprised that the numbers are lower or bigger than you thought they'd be. But it it does. It, it's crazy because most businesses, you can't just look every 10 seconds and see, 
I mean, I guess maybe some of you can, but it, you can you can get carried away with the fact that, yeah, it's almost real time telling me as someone buying these books and it's a huge novelty when it happens and you always want it to happen more than it does. But after you get a little bit used to it, I think just for me, for my own personal sanity, you have to try to limit. And I've even been in parts where I say, okay, on the weekends, I'm not going to look at sales numbers. I'm not going to update it on the weekend or, you know, go, I'm only going to do it on Fridays. And I, I haven't been very good at doing that. But I think that in a perfect world, I probably would just say that I'm only going to, because they're still going to be there. If I check it once a week or check it once a day, it's not going to change. It's just a matter of how much am I thinking about it. Um, so it, it, you have to find kind of what the right balance for you is so that you keep a, a clear head about it. I like to check it first thing in the morning. It motivates me um, either way, because if it's a, it was a down day, I can still look at it and say, OK, well, it's a down day. But look how we've done over the week or over the month or over the year. However far out I have to go to feel good about myself. And that's all right. People right. are reading. Let's give them more of what they want. And then I can uh, get my day started properly. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, whether you're selling two books a day or 20 books a day or, you know, someday maybe 200 books a day. You know, and that's a great thing to be able to think that whatever number it is, whether it's on a daily basis or at the end of the month, and this number of people from all over the country or all over the world are reading the books that I wrote, you know, that that's pretty amazing. Like we said before, you know, compared to ways that you could do it any other time in the world, and even just the traditional path, you don't usually get that same level of feedback. It's, it's pretty incredible to be able to look and see the impact that you're having. Um, no, twice a year, and for a lot of traditional published authors, you get that royalty statement, and that's how you did for six months. Right. Yeah, for sure. So it's 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 pretty pretty neat. But it is it is a temptation that that has to be overcome because I've I've been there at the early stages of things of oh my god I sold five books in an hour I'm Stephen King yeah. it's been another hour and I've only sold one oh it's time to despair nothing good is ever going to happen to me and then of course you're that that was early on uh, so it hurts all the all the more because you're not going to be doing the numbers you want to be doing that early. Yeah, I mean, and that, it actually just, you know, briefly, it ties back into what you asked about before about experience with sales, because I think one of the things I learned with sales is that sales by nature is very much a roller coaster. And you, you're, especially if you have goals and quotas and things like some days are going to be fantastic and you're riding high and other days, it's just not going to happen the way you think it's going to be. And you have to find a way to keep a little bit of an even keel to just kind of plug along and, and regardless of whether it's great or not great and just keep doing your thing and, and know what you need to do and keep trying and, you know, check in every once in a while. But if you get too excited or too down, you're going to be an emotional wreck and, and it's not going to work. Whatever you're trying to do or write or sell, it's, it's probably not going to work out that way. So, you know, that takes a little bit of experience of, of going through that and kind of learning how to, how it is. But I think the sooner you can kind of, not get too up or down about it and, and find not that you shouldn't be excited, but you know, it, it can help you a little bit too that way. That's another nice thing about sales is you learn early on, usually if you have a, a great month or a great quarter, and then you go and you spend all the money and then the next month or quarter isn't that great. You learn that I don't spend every dime that comes in. Let's let's put some aside because it's right. it's you're gonna have slow cycles. It it just happens. Yep, no, definitely. To other to other salespeople, never happened to me. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about online marketing then. Um, what things have you had? You, you mentioned that you're using the, the the Amazon ads. What other marketing platforms are you using online to to give you a boost? 
I mean, so marketing wise, I mean, other than what we talked about offline, um, you know, the Amazon ads are the biggest thing that I've found to be successful. Years up until the last year or two, I'd been fairly successful getting some BookBub ads. Um, I probably had six or seven over the over the maybe a three or four year period, but then I haven't gotten any the last almost two years probably. And I think I've I've consistently heard this from folks is I do have my eBooks that are exclusive on, on uh, Kindle Unlimited. And everyone I hear through forums and things is that it's rare these days to be able to get a BookBub ad unless uh, unless you're wide. They just don't seem to be going the, the KU way, um, which is, has been my experience. Um, so I used to find that to be a huge advantage. When I could get one of those, it would really spike the readers and it would kind of goose the algorithms in Amazon and, and really get a whole rush of momentum. So that was one of the early things that I did to really get some adoption. So that that's kind of faded away. I probably should do some more um, like quarterly promotions with some of the other smaller um, groups out there that I, I it's kind of on my list of things I, I know I should do, but I don't usually do it as all the time. Um, but the, the AMS, I tried Facebook ads over the years a few times and, and I've heard some other people say too, it just seems to be very good at burning through your money and I haven't found the same uptick or even measurable uptick to see that those are making a big difference. So I'm always, I'm always wary of sinking too much money into something that I can't really see that's giving a return. So I think the great thing about AMS ads is that, you know, it, it does give you not completely accurate with page reads and things that you also are getting, but it, it gives you a decent read of how many orders did you get out of running these ads. Um, so I'm I'm doing more and more more of those the past year or so, and it's hard to know exactly what would ha I can have a few conspiracy theories about what Amazon is doing to try to make everybody spend lots of money on ads versus just let it happen organically to try to sink more money out of the authors. But I think. It seems to be having an impact. You never know what, what you'd be selling if you weren't running the ads, of course. Um, but I think it's a good thing to try to keep your books top of mind, especially if you have more more books. It, it's that many, again, back to the entry points of the ways people can find you. It's that many more places that someone can find out about you. And I tend to mostly, most heavily promote the first books in the series to try to get people into it. And, and that's been positive too. And I notice you're not currently doing perma-free. Have you experimented with that in the past with your first books? I really have not. Um, I know that is a, a tactic a lot of people use. That One of the reasons I haven't done that very much is that my first book, Summer of the Woods, has always been my biggest seller. Um, and while I still sell many more paperbacks as a middle grade author than I do ebooks, which is I always think is the inverse of what most adult authors do, um, so it wouldn't affect that per se, but I've just I've been hesitant to kind of go that route because I think it's it's if it wasn't selling great, um, that might be one thing. But I think I, I've just never kind of gone. So sometimes I'll I'll move in and do some ninety nine cent sales to try to get people into it. But I especially since it's a little bit more of an effort to kind of get it perma free and then change it out and different things. Um, most of the time I keep the the ebooks at, at two ninety nine. Um, and I found that's a pretty good price point for, for people that want to check it out. And then my paperbacks are $9.99, so they're, they're pretty accessible that way, too. That makes sense. And I've had some uh, up and down varying levels of success with uh, AMS. 
Um, so since you are having success, what are maybe some tips you can share with us about how to properly use AMS? Um, I mean, I think everybody's kind of figuring out as they go to some extent. I, I've I've never bought some of the courses. You know, Mark Dawson has a has a course that does all kinds of advertising and things. Um, I'm I, I'm sure it's great. Um, I've I've kind of more of the route of figuring it out myself, and it's funny because I think everybody's experience varies a little bit, which is a little disconcerting sometimes. I've read um, some books about Amazon ads, and sometimes the things that they're talking about. Are, are not the same things that I see when I try to do it. So I think there's some general practices, but some of it is you just have to fool with it. So what I usually try to do is, you know, come up with a few different uh, copy to use and then start out with just a couple bucks a day and see how it goes. And if you can find something that seems to be taking off, then I'll gradually move the, the daily amount that I'm spending on that ad uh, and, and gradually increasing it. And then I try to go through every few days, you know, I've actually, and I'm again in the conspiracy theory. I, I get a little bit wondering. I've had probably better returns when I have the. If you're familiar with Amazon ads, the ones that automatically select where they're running, the automatic ads have generally, with mine, and it, it's a little confusing. Is they tend to have a lower um, average cost of sale than the ones I'm doing manually, which is which is a little strange. My my conspiracy theory is that. Because they, they, at least the way I do it, that you can't see where they're being targeted. So I, I wonder sometimes, are they just getting most of those clicks on your name or on the book title, which maybe someone would find anyway? So it's hard to know. But I, I've started doing more and more of those because either way, the cost is fairly low. Um, so letting Amazon um, just go with their automatic and right. letting them know this. Automatic keywords that they just do, and at least the the interface that I have, it doesn't show you what keywords they're using, but it shows you the returns. And and I found mostly that those those are are are, are good returns. Um, and then I did go out. I used um, KDP Rocket, which is a service that you can pay for once, and it helps you kind of narrow down different keywords. So when you're doing it manually, you can help find keywords that are related to what books you're looking to sell and and things maybe that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So that's a good way to kind of build a list because you know, I was always mystified. People are talking about they're running 400 different ads and they've got thousands of keywords and you know how do you come up with these things? So the more tools that you can find to help generate some of these words, a lot of them are never going to hit or never going to be spending any money on it. But then I go through and I look at the way I do it and, and I think everybody comes up with their own system. But I look just on every few days and look, okay, the last few days and then the, the, the time that it's been running, which words are spending the most money? Because if you had 500 words, some of them are going to be spending a lot more than others. And then what is that return? And I kind of have some thresholds that I found that I said, okay, if I go X number of clicks and X number of money and no one's bought a book on that word, then I kill it. So I'm just not wasting money because I did read something that said, you know, if a word hasn't started spent, started getting returns after a certain number of hits, it may never, you know, it just may not be performing. And then I try to just keep the, as much as I can pull down the bids for the advertising. And, and this is probably in the weeds a lot more for people that haven't been doing this, but you know, it's something you start thinking about a lot when you're spending money on it. Try to gradually pull the bids down to the point um, where you're spending as little as possible to still get returns that are favorable. And because a lot of my books I run on the paperbacks, which don't have the same margins as the eBooks. So I, I generally try to keep my average cost of sales under 30% because, you know, I know that's at least, especially since I'm mostly advertising the first book, 
I want to try to be very close to breaking even at the very least and hopefully below that. But then you're going to have people that get into the series. You'll have more read through down the line. So I think even if I can be close to breaking even, it's still going to be a net positive for people getting in and and getting money um, down the road. Yeah, more readers is more readers, right? Yeah, exactly. So hopefully that makes sense. But I'm always, you know, they just updated their whole interface a few weeks ago. So you kind of have to figure that out. And, and see what's a what's a method that works for you. And I think it's just testing things. You know, don't, I think where sometimes people make mistakes is they go and they set it for hundreds of dollars and then all of a sudden they spend all this money and they realize they didn't sell very many books. But if you start small, be patient, try it for a few weeks, see, you know, learn the system, learn how you can make changes, see what what's happening. And then gradually as you start and try it a few different ways and then as you start getting some success, you know, ratchet those up gradually and then and that will keep you from kind of losing your shirt when you when you want to make sure that you're not you know overspending and it keeps it something that's worthwhile and hopefully it will you know just be one of those things that'll keep getting more people into into your books not not the only thing if you rely on it for everything it's probably not going to be enough but i've, I've found it to be useful and we are in the weeds but that's okay <laughs> i want to know about those weeds um, so, so, so that we uh, can maybe help the, those uh, indie authors out there that are listening to us or watching us. Um, what is a good daily budget you think to start with, so that they're not losing their shirt? I mean, I would probably start with two dollars a day for an ad. That's that's usually the way I do it, and you have to let it run for almost maybe up to a week to see if it starts, um, you know, how it's doing, and not panic if the first two days and it's some uh, return that seems much higher. Than, than you know a higher number than what you want it to be it usually tends to settle out a little bit or for whatever it's it's very mysterious i mean even most things you read it nobody can quite fully understand how it does what it does but i think you know giving it some time to to settle out and then see see how it's doing and um i think you know i'll start out at two dollars and if something starts doing better i'll, I'll probably won't spend more than five or ten dollars unless it starts to really have done that for a few months and seems to be performing well and, and I might ramp it up a little bit like that. But I found at least the way I'm doing it, even if you set it for $200 or something a day, unless you're making some outrageous bids where they're $2 a, a keyword or something, I mean, most of my bids, I try to keep them in that 20 to 30 cents range per, per bid per click. So if you're doing that, chances are you're not going to be spending gads of money. Um, but uh, that, yeah, no, I've done the $2 bids before to varying degrees of success. Yeah, the only time I accidentally tried to put something at like 20 cents a bid and I just wasn't paying attention and it, I think I put it at $200 a bid or something. And I looked, I'm like, oh, how did I spend $40 on my keyword yesterday with no sales? <laughs> so yeah, it, it, you have to be careful and you have to really watch what you're doing because there are, are uh, consequences, but um, I, it's, it seems to be working. Let's see, what, uh, you mentioned you teach a class on, on self-publishing. Rather than me trying to think up the, the best things to ask you about, what are some of the biggest, biggest points that you try to make when you teach that class that maybe uh, viewers and listeners could benefit from? Um, you know, some of the things we talked about already, but I think in, in other things, trying to, I think the professionalism is an important piece and really looking at the, the holistic, if you're talking about specifically about self-publishing, you know, really looking at the, at the entirety of what you're doing and, and, and not just 
thinking about writing the book and not just thinking that that's the end of the line. So, you know, you are the publisher, like that's the, it's, it's almost obvious, but sometimes people forget to look at it that way that, you know, it's, you're the person that's taking the place of the traditional publishing company. So all the things that they would do, you want to try to mirror those, maybe not exactly the way they're doing it, but the same types of, of, of issues. So the marketing and the, the editing and the covers, you know, all of that, I think too, too often people just try to do it as, as a, as a side hobby. And that again, back to the knowing your why, that may be fine for what you're trying to do, but if that's not what you're trying to do, you really have to be very intentional about making it as high quality as you can. Um, I think that's important. And then, you know, there's a lot of, of other, um, on my website, I've got some, a list some of some of the tools and the companies I use. So like I use Ingram spark along with Amazon with KDP print for all the paperbacks I do. And I have them in hardcover and I think trying to use, there's one of the greatest things that's changed since I started doing this even six years ago is there's a lot more tools that are, that make it easier. And there's so many more resources out there that you can find a, a clear overview of some of the, the best practices that you can do. Whereas five or six years ago, you kind of had to hunt for it in the weeds a little bit more. So you're know, taking advantage of those services that exist, whether you're using, if, whether you're going wide and using services like draft to digital, or you're, you're trying to use just like things like ACX to do your audiobooks. I use some software that I bought called Vellum, which works really well if you have a Mac. So instead of paying formatters to format my, my eBooks and my print books, I, I bought the software one time and it takes me about 15 minutes to format any book that I'm doing. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world and it looks really, really good. So like things like that, I use book funnel a lot to do all my advanced reader copies, which is extremely affordable. And it's a great way to send links out there for people to get eBooks without having to do some convoluted side loading and, and find ways to get, get them out to your advanced reader list or if you're trying to give away books. So taking advantage of services like that that have come up over the years are, are really important. And I, the other thing I'd say is, you know, listening to podcasts, um, you know, I think I've, I always say I've gotten kind of my master's in publishing over the years from listening to podcasts. You know, there's a handful of podcasts out there like the self-publishing podcast and Joanna Penn's podcast and um, a lot of other ones um, that some of which have kind of come and gone, but there's a lot of great ones that the sell more book show I listen to every week to get the latest news and publishing. And Oh, I never missed the sell more book show or, or the creative pen. Yeah. So, I mean, those are great resource resources. So whenever I'm in the car and I don't have the kids with me, I'm usually listening to a podcast and you can, and, and this is obviously another great one now that I'm listening to uh, to yours. So, um, you know, a lot of ways to stay informed and, and that's part of the whole running your, your efforts like a business and being professional about it. You have to stay in the know about what's happening in the industry. And, and if something like, you know, for me, like Vellum came along, it's like, oh, this looks easy. This is great. I saw some examples of how it formatted things and that, takes away one extra step of where I had to pay people and get the files the right way. And now it's effortless and it gives me a lot more flexibility to do it myself. So it, it just makes it easier, which I think, you know, didn't always exist five or six years ago, which, which I appreciate too. And I think that's something that someone, you know, whether you're starting or, or have done it a few, a little while, you can really afford yourself some, some benefits by being familiar with those types of things. And, using the new tools that come out and exist and staying informed um, 
to, to try to make make things go as smoothly as you can. Let me uh, let me make this uh, kind of my final question because I know we're we're coming up on two hours and both of us have been coughing a bit and are uh, going to talk ourselves hoarse. Um, but a question I always like to ask is, what is the one piece of advice you wish that somebody had given you six years ago when you first started? That's a great question. Um, you know, I I would. I guess the end, I would probably say I wish that someone had, I figured out the indie publishing thing a little bit by accident and by myself. And I think knowing, and, and that's why when I talk to people, I try to, not that it's the right thing for everyone, but I try to kind of evangelize a little bit about indie publishing because especially in children's uh, book world, um, it's not as well known and it's not as well accepted. So I think, knowing that there are multiple paths to be able to get out there and get your words into the world is a, is a really good thing to know. And it may not be the right thing for you to do, but the fact that the possibility exists without kind of the gatekeepers that have always been there for hundreds of years is a, is a huge thing. So I think fully understanding the, the, the list of options of what you have, you know, it's kind of like someone going off and they're, they're finishing high school, knowing, okay, you may want to go to this kind of college, you may want to go get a job, you may want to take a year off, you may want to go to a junior, uh, uh, you know, a two-year college. There's a lot of options and knowing which one is the best for you based on what you're trying to accomplish. And, and that's changed a lot over the years, you know, even from when, 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 when we went off to school, you know, that's changed a lot in the industry. So the more you can be aware of just what opportunities exist, um, I think that that's really valuable for people. And that's one of the things that whenever I get a chance to, to talk to people, um, like I said, it, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I think there's great folks that are obviously doing amazing things in the traditional route. And it's, it's something I'm, I've kicked around about is it, would it be beneficial to me to kind of have a foot in that, uh, in that water as well, just to get some of the other benefits that maybe you don't have. So it's not good or bad. It's just a matter of knowing, what's the right fit for what you're trying to do. So that's probably what I wish I understood a little bit more in the beginning um, that I kind of found by accident that I, I hope other people realize a little bit more as they're kind of stumbling into it. Just because you go indie now doesn't mean you're always going to be indie. There yeah. will still be opportunities. And uh, God knows I, I occasionally uh, chat with editors and we'll, we'll, we'll see if one of those things ever pans out. Um, I got no, I, I don't have any skin in the fight as far as um, do I, I don't swear allegiance to publishing models. I, I don't care if you traditionally publish, if you self-publish, however you publish, so long as you're happy, you're creating books that are worthy of readers' time and the readers are happy. I think that's all gravy. That's fantastic, which is why I'll go from an episode like uh, we had here Tuesday with uh, literary agent Jennifer March Soloway. I'm talking with you today. Uh, I'll be talking with some traditional authors. I'll be talking with some more indie authors. I just want to know what makes authors tick um, and, and, and what's going to be successful. And yeah. this has been just a, a great conversation. I'm going to have to go back and, and write down some of the things that you said uh, and listen to it a couple of times through to, to Crockett's fullness. Because um, there's just a lot of great tips uh, over a relatively short period of time. Uh, Stephen, where, uh, remind esteemed audience where they can find out more about you online and where they can stalk you on social media. Yeah, so my, my website is stephenksmith.net, 
and I'm on Twitter at Stephen K. Smith one and Facebook and Instagram is Stephen K. Smith author. So those are probably the best ways to track me down. And I've got links on there about things for writers about publishing. There's links on there about school visits and all my books. Um, so that's uh, probably the best way to find me. And as always, you can find more interviews with authors, publishing professionals, all kinds of great folks, as well as information about me at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, make sure you download your free ebook of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees so that you're ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People coming very soon. Uh, Stephen, we've got a sign-off phrase I've been asking the guests to say. It's uh, in keeping with the ninja theme of the show. Uh, that sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Sure. Hi, ya, and what have you.